Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. This week on the show, we have Paul Ruse, the founder and director at Performance by Design. Ruse is one of the Australia's most respected leaders in football, a two-time Australian captain. He played 356 games and was inducted in the AFL Hall of Fame in 2005. That same year, he coached Sydney Swans to the famous premiership. He also worked as head of the Swans Academy, head coach at Melbourne Football Club, and is currently consulting at North Melbourne Football Club. Here's what you can expect. We chatted about Ruzi's love for sport growing up and how this helped his ability to read the play, the importance of strong leaders and mentors to show you how to train and prepare for performance, changes in the AFL structures over the years and where he sees it going forward, two key questions to ask those close to you, the answers will give you a better understanding of where you may need to improve. His coaching philosophy and the importance of everyone at a club understanding what success looks like for their role. The do's and don'ts for leadership. Ruzi created a list as a player and referred to the list his whole coaching career. How to prepare and run successful meetings and how to make those hard conversations more comfortable. Culture and why it's critical to create a safe environment for those open and honest conversations. So get your notebook out as we unpack these huge topics. Before we start episode 52, shout out to Troy Jones for being our first Patreon member. Troy is an aspiring AFL strength and conditioning coach studying under Keegan Smith and Ben Patrick in the ATG system and has joined our academy to further develop himself as a coach. Our first 10 subscribers will receive a free coaching session with myself. I'm really looking forward to this coaching session with Troy to further discuss his career ambitions and how the Prepare Like a Pro Academy can help him. The podcast mission is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please show your support by following us on Instagram and subscribing to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Let's go. Here he is. How you going, Paul? Good, mate. How are you? Going well. Thanks for jumping on. That was no worries. a smooth transition. Yeah, I'm not an IT expert, so I'm glad we're not talking about IT. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're definitely not. <laughs> we, don't want to, we don't want to bore our uh, I'm no IT guru either, mate. So I don't think our listeners will be either. That's nah, all worked well. We're on. We're on. We're on, and we're away. Fantastic. Let's dive in. Take us back to the very beginning, uh, Ruzi. Uh, when did you find you had a passion for for AFL football first? Because you were a player before you were a coach. Yeah, I think when I reflect on the era that I grew up on, it was just really all about sport. I, I guess I was really fortunate. I had a really sporting parents. You know, mum and dad were heavily involved in the local tennis club. We bought a place out in Donbar, which was sort of a just orchards back then, back in the sort of uh, mid-60s, early 70s sort of thing. So then everything was about sport. You know, basically it was football, tennis and basketball for me. And I just kept on playing and playing and playing. And, and probably, Jack, the system didn't mean you had to pick a sport. So the system back then meant you just, you just played. So you actually didn't have to make a conscious decision to actually say, yeah, I want to be an AFL player. Um, I was lucky enough I got picked for both the Victorian football state side and the Victorian basketball state side. So I was still playing really high-level basketball. And then I got invited down to, to Fitzroy under-19. So it probably wasn't until you get to an AFL club that you start to think about playing AFL football, whereas it's dramatically different now because you've got you know, the under-18 
under you know the championships where kids have got to make decisions on sports now at 14 or 15 or 16. So I was I was particularly pleased I grew up in that era that I was just able to play. Got invited down with a lot of my mates to Fitzroy, played some under-19s football, and then in 1982, so 1981, I got on the senior list, and then 1982, I got picked to play my first game. So it was probably more organic rather than actually saying, yeah, I desperately want to play AFL football. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, because it's so different to now. I mean, the yeah. kids almost have to make that age, that decision at, what, 14, 15, 16 years old, where you've got to commit to one, like you said. Um, yeah, 100%. When, when, yeah. So so it wasn't um, at that time when you're playing state basketball, state football, um, was it just a matter of, okay, who's going to pick me up and I'll go with that sport? It was funny. I actually enjoyed basketball a bit better. You know, I don't know why. I, I just loved basketball. I was probably a little bit unique because most of my mates were playing cricket and footy and it was probably that I've started, we put in a, a primary school team, I think, in a, in a primary school. That's how I got involved in basketball. So it was actually a little bit different. Um, yeah. But I really loved, I loved basketball. I loved the skill set. I loved training. <laughs> there was no weather to contend with, you know, whereas footy, the ground's yeah, a bit muddy and raining and all those sorts of things. So I really enjoyed my, my basketball, but the pathway to basketball probably wasn't as obvious. And then once you get drawn mm. into the football world of under-19s and the excitement of, you know, seeing Bernie Quinlan and Gary Wilson and playing, you know, back then we sort of played in the mornings and we'd put the seconds and then the seniors would play. So you'd hang around, watch the seconds, watch the seniors. So you sort of got drawn into the, to the football environment, whereas the basketball environment was more, geez, can I play in the Olympics? Can I, can I be one of the you know, 12 best players in Australia? A lot harder to think like that than it yeah. was. Can, can, I, can I enjoy my footy with my mates and go down and train at Fitzroy? And it just was a lot easier to become a footballer than it probably was to become a basketballer. And from a development point of view for footballers that are listening that are at that age that they might need to start making or they're feeling the pressure to make a decision, um, how much did basketball help your football? Oh, it was incredible. And I really, when I started working with the Sydney Swans Academy um, in 2013, you know, we, we made a real commitment to the players that were playing other sports. We didn't want them to stop playing other sports. And I think that's why, you know, if you look at players now, Isaac Heaney, Callum Mills, Nick Blakey, all those guys that are playing for the Swans, I just think it's invaluable to play other sports. And basketball, if you look at some of the great football, Scotty Pendlebury, I think, had an AIS scholarship to play yeah. basketball. You can see the skill set. Terry Wallace in my day was a really good basketballer. Tony Shaw was a really good basketballer. You know, so the skill sets were so complementary. So there's no, no question in my mind that basketball played a huge part in me being a, an AFL player. No, no question. And what do you think those kids should do if they're in a similar position where they're loving both, they're playing both at a high level? Do you stick fat and just make it work? Or do you, do you think it's different now? You have to commit um, to one at a younger age? It probably depends on your time. You know, it, it, the time is valuable. And also the problem you have now is when, when I was going through year 12, to be perfectly frank, I didn't study one minute. You know, we, we had the system where it was a two-week study opportunity, two weeks off school. And all your 100% of your marks went through to your end of year exam. So it was a dramatically different system. So I, I literally didn't do any study. So all I did was play tennis, basketball, and football. But I wouldn't recommend awesome. that now. Um, yeah. So it probably comes back to your time. But don't underestimate the skill set that you will get from playing other sports. 
but you still, to be an expert in one, it's the old 10,000 hours, isn't it? You know, you need to, if you find you want to be an AFL player, as long as you're getting enough reps in your handballs and your kicks, I, I would continue your basketball. If you're feeling that, you know, you're getting shortchanged and you mightn't have enough time to become an expert, then that's when you've got to make, make a decision. But I was, my, my week, I could literally tell you still, my week was Monday basketball, Tuesday footy, Wednesday basketball, Thursday footy, Friday night basketball, Saturday morning tennis, Saturday afternoon basketball, um, training, Saturday night basketball, Sunday morning tennis, Sunday afternoon football. That's, that's what my week wow. looked like. Um, so it was an incredibly fortunate position to be able to do that. And then I snuck in, I went to school pretty much from 9 o'clock till 3 o'clock during the day just to fill recover. in time, really. Yeah, just to recover <laughs> and kick the ball with my mates and throw baskets at, at research and lunchtime. So, yeah, it was a dramatically different time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you build up that work capacity as well, don't you? And so then transition into professional sport as an, as an athlete. I think that's a really good point, Jack. Is It's funny, I went to a seminar when I was coaching the, uh, the academy, as I said, and there was a lot of fitness guys like yourself and, and physios and doctors, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a theory, because of the lifestyle now, the more sedentary lifestyle of the kids, and I've just explained my lifestyle, that they have more injuries now when they get to 17 or 18 because the work rate bumps up so dramatically. So I've just mm. explained what I pretty much did from a 10-year-old boy to when I played Fitzroy. So that was, that was every week pretty much of, <laughs> of every year. So you, you think yeah. about that in the, num- the amount of volume that was going through my body, that's, that's not talking about riding a bike to my mate's house before I kicked the footy you know, on the off nights. So the amount of volume that was going through my body in terms of, the physical intensity since I was 10. And mm. now what, what the theory, one of the theories is that because the capacity jumps up so dramatically once they get into these high rep squads, 16, 17, 18, their bodies just aren't used to it. My body was getting trained as a 10-year-old to play AFL footy. I didn't know it clearly at the time, but the, yeah. the amount, of, amount of time, the physical exertion I put through my body from 10 to, to prior to playing Fitzroy was, was quite dramatic. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you were known for playing quite an attacking, almost like the modern day um, player now, really, back then. Um, did the basketball element transfer into your game? Like, or, or was that just the way you played footy? Yeah, I, I, it's hard to say specifically, but there's no doubt. I think one of my great strengths was reading the game. I think I had an amazing capacity to, to know where the ball was going. And it's a really, you know, as I look back now, I think it's a, a skill that's, a lot of players don't have. And, and, and I always joke about, you know, with players that I played with and they said, you know, I oh, really never picked up his man. And I always joke, well, there's only one footy. Yeah. I've never seen mm. two balls on a, on a football ground ever. Uh, there's one ball. And if you've got the ball, the opposition haven't got the ball. So I just, I think one of my great skill sets was just an incredible awareness about the game and where the ball was. And I think it did relate to basketball because basketball's, a 360 game, you know, quick offense, quick transition to defense, boxing out, understanding, you know, I was a point guard, you know, so understanding, uh-huh. um, you know, where my, um, where my teammates were, how to find them, all those sorts of things. So, yeah, there's no doubt that that contributed a lot to my success in football. Awesome. No, oh, that's, some, that's some great things for, for people to note down. And if you're playing a lot of different sports, don't um, rush into being a specialist too early. So that's... Um... Yeah, we're off to a good start. That's that's exciting. How it not only helped you get there, but also um, play a long career 
with that work capacity, like you mentioned, and and uh, being able to play um, at, at a professional level, at a high level, uh, for a long time. With, with the um, journey getting into Fitzroy, and then um, as a player, were there some strong people that influenced your game, or were you very much um, someone that didn't have mentors and you sort of developed yourself? Not as much my game, although coaches are obviously, yeah, when the coaches allow you to do things. And I think the great thing with Wolsey and David Park and is, you know, they allowed me to play to my strengths. You know, they obviously coached me. And if I wasn't picking up a man or I wasn't doing things they, they liked, they were saying, no, you've got to tighten up, you know, Ruzi. But more, they did allow me to play to my strengths. And I think that was one of the great things about Robert Walls and David Park. And probably more the training aspect was the role models. You know, as you know, Jack, is to have great training mentors and off-field mentors, that was the biggest thing for me. Yeah, Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinlan, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, yeah, all these guys were really, really hard trainers, you know, high performers back in the early 80s. There was no such thing as an off-night, an optional night. They were always down practicing their skills, working hard. And they were also great mentors off the field. You know, I remember going mm-hmm. on footy trips and, you know, some of the older guys, you know, Peter Francis, Lee Carlson, you know, going to... We went to Hawaii one year, which was incredible. I mean, we had a pre-season camp in Hawaii, I think in 1983 or 1984. I mean, what an incredible experience for a you know, 19-year-old to go to Hawaii. You know, yeah. And it would be easy to get off track over there. And, you know, to, and we were training mornings and nights. But I remember you know, the senior players wrapping their arms around the young guys at night and saying, look, it's time to head home, boys. Uh, let's get out of here. Let's get home. I remember yeah, knocking the door in the morning. Come on, Ruzi, get up, get out of bed. Let's go. We're going to go to training. Those things, I don't think you understand at the time how valuable they are and how important mm. they are. You know, but the role model leaders that I had were just, and I can't thank them enough. You know, when I look at how my life worked out, you know, both from a family point of view and a coaching point of view, playing point of view, it wouldn't have happened you know, without those guys. No, no question. They had an incredible impact on my life. And did you seek them out when you came to the club or, or was it, um, did they seek you or was it a bit of both, like a two-way sort of communication? I think they were just such an approachable group. We, we didn't have any clicky groups at Fitzroy. And when you've got 60-odd players, you know, a big group of players, and you've got some genuine superstars of the competition, Bernie Quinlan, Brownlow medalist, Gary Wilson, top five player in the competition. But they were just really good people. And I think the environment that they created for the young players just because of their behaviours was incredible, you know. And I think because they were so approachable and such good people, you couldn't help but watch and learn and listen. And the smart yeah. players that did it became really, really successful AFL players, you know. And, and really it was just observation. And it was times when they'd wrap, your arms, wrap their arms around you and say, mate, you know, come on, you can run harder than that or you can do better than that. Or even in games... Yeah, I remember even going through a tough period when my first year as captain and Mickey Conlon grabbed me, he said, Ruzi, you never lose your ability, never lose confidence in yourself. Yeah, you're a great player. Just keep, keep working hard and it'll, it'll turn around. So moments like that become really, really invaluable in your journey. And yeah, for the leaders out there or, or people that don't necessarily think they're leaders, if you're a great role model, you're a leader. Yeah, because people are watching yeah. you all the time what your behaviours are, and, and, and it's never been more important in society than it is today. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and that's a, um, something you're doing now, professional level, and, and probably in your coaching career, you're quite well known for, certainly was leadership. Um, I guess that started from captaincy, but it probably happened a little bit earlier on, even seeing these guys. Like, when, when do you think leadership 
does it start? Does it, is it just something that is forever evolving um, as you're growing up as a person? Like, what's your take on, on leadership? Yeah, I think you're evolving. You know, I, I, I can only remember being captain, I think, once of my footy team. And I was captain of the state team in basketball a couple of times. But as a young kid, you really, it, it's more a tote guy. This is, this is awesome. I'm the captain. You don't really know what a captain yeah. sort of does as a junior footy team. But then when you get you're into an just AFL, the best player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and you don't do anything different really to anyone else, do you? Really, you just said, "Oh, this is pretty cool." I'll run through the banner first. If there's a banner, yeah, I'll I'll get out in the ground before everyone else. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. But it's, but it's when you start getting to a footy club, you understand what leadership is, and and learning from Gary Wilson, who was my first captain, was amazing. Yeah, his work ethic. I think it evolves over time. Learning from Robert Walls and and David Parkin and all my coaches, all my teammates. All my players um, that I that I played with was amazing. So, and then I took over the coaching role in 2003, uh, midway through 2002. So really, it's just a, a wealth of experience that I'd, I'd had. I think mm. as captain as captain of Fitzroy and going through a really tough period, I, I then did start to do things that probably most other captains weren't. You know, talking to players about you know their finance and not getting paid, you know, things like that. So you 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 sort of evolve into a leader. Yeah, because of the circumstances, perhaps you're in at that particular time. So that had a big impact as well. You know, the conduit between the club and the players when we were going through really tough times, players coming to me, coaches coming to me, you know, executives coming to me, chairman, CEO. So I probably did have a lot of experiences along the way, which certainly helped me as, as a coach when I took over at Sydney Swans. And did you see that from Gary Wilson? The, like you mentioned the hard work, but did you see the stuff behind the scenes? Like, were you aware that that's what leaders did, or was that just something you were throwing the deep end and you just worked it out as you you got the captaincy? Probably not as much because we were part time. What I did see was a good person with great work ethic, and I thought to myself, well, if our best player has to train as hard as that and is is such a good person, well, I, I should be a good person and train really hard because I'm nowhere near as talented as what he is. So it's really more organic. Bearing in mind for those listening, we were part time. You know, we were we were working during the day and we were training. You know, six a.m., six thirty in the morning pre-season, five o'clock at night pre-season and in-season. So there, there wasn't any time to to establish, you know, behaviours and values and purpose and leadership groups and all those sorts of things. So it was more organic. And now I think it's the experiences. Once you get named captain, I think I was named captain in nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah, that's when you start to think, well, well, yeah, geez, I'm getting talked to by the marketing people, the sponsorship people, the chairman wants to talk to me, the coach wants to talk to me more. And then it's just, yeah, finding out your own leadership style based on what you've learned from the leaders that you've had as well. Yeah, yeah. And and when did you, um, like when when did the full-time sort of component start for you and, and how did you find that? that different workload, I guess, because then you're finishing your career as, you know, yep. outside of football and um, what was that transition like? Yeah, it was probably when I went to, so I went to Sydney in 1995 and really that's when I became a full-time footballer, you know, and that's probably the transition for everyone into full-time football and then guys coming in and, yeah, eight o'clock on Monday morning, your main session Monday morning and Tuesday morning and as you've experienced. So it was probably the mid-90s when it transformed and then I think that's when the whole industry transformed because we basically had players so much more access to players. Yeah, mm. so leadership had to transform because it would have fallen behind. Players would have been walking around going, Why isn't a coach talking to me? Yeah, I'm sitting I'm at the club for six hours a day. Whereas if I'm at the club, you know, with under Wolsey from and I arrive at 
4.30 and I'm on the track at 5 o'clock and then we finish training at 7.30 and I have a shower and I get in the car, I don't care whether Walsey speaks to me or not. Because yeah. I, I, to be perfectly frank, well, I haven't got time to speak to the coach. But a, mm. but a player in the mid-90s is walking around the club going, why isn't the coach talking to me? I've got, I've got a spare half hour, spare hour. You know, so you, you, you had to modify your leadership skills. And there was a new age of leadership coming in in the mid-90s, no question. And is that when leadership groups started? Yeah, I, I, the best thing, one of the best things I did was wrote down at the end of 1998 when I finished playing what I liked about my leaders and didn't like about my leaders. Because I yeah. suspect we're, we're in a new age. We, we are now transferring the top-down leadership where you tell, you tell, you tell, players listen, 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 to an era where we had to discuss. And we had, it was no longer players versus coaches. Yeah, so when I took over 2002, 2003, we embarked on a leadership program. Yeah, as you, as you know now, which is more than the norm, but Sydney were the first ones to do it, set of behaviours. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yep. pick a leadership group based on voting, you know, and then pick a captain based on who's in the leadership group. And that was happened to be Stewie Maxfield. And then it was coach players communicating every single day, formally, you know, two or three times a week. Uh, me talking to Stewie all the time about how the player's feeling, are they behaving correctly? Yeah, am I coaching, am I coaching well? And also that document I wrote down held me accountable. That was a, an audit for myself. And I had yeah. that document in my desk for eight and a half years coaching wow. Sydney and three years you know, when I coached the Melbourne Footy Club as well. So it was a bit, by far the best document I, I did and I'm so grateful I did. And yeah, we set up a really strong empowerment system at the Sydney Swans and I did it for three years at Melbourne as well. So what were some of the things you wrote down on that document? I'm, in, I'm intrigued. What's a good leader? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of them are sort of common sense, but I, I sort of talk about common sense is not that common. But Probably the ones yeah. that were more pertinent was never fly off the handle after a game. If you've got nothing, you know, positive to say, don't say nothing, don't say anything at all. That was probably yeah. the number one thing I saw from coaches destroying relationships after a game. Yeah, okay. and, and you've got about three or four minutes to walk from the coaching box down to the, the change rooms. You've lost the game. A, a assistant coach has yelled something in your ear with 30 seconds to go. Oh, why did Kirky do this? So, of course, the first thing you do is start yelling at Kirky you don't have all the information, you're, you're, you know, you're under pressure and you just go nuts. So that was one that was really, really important. Good communication skills, treat people as the way you want to be treated yourself. A lot of them are really simple. You know, um, be really specific at quarter time, half time, three quarter time. Just don't abuse players, you know, come up with solutions. So really it was, it was how do I help the players? If I was to actually summarise the 25 points, it was as a coach – you're really only there for the players. And I said this to the players all the time. I only exist to make you guys better. So if I don't really understand what you're going through, and the best part of the document, I wrote it down as a player. Okay, mm. so I didn't write it down as a coach. I actually wrote it down as a player. So I was what actually you wanted as a player. What I wanted as a player. So yeah, when the players awesome. were going through tough times, I was able to look at the document and go, hang on, they want me to be a good communicator. They want me to be positive. They want me to find solutions. They don't want me to yell them all the time. That's what they want. That's what I wanted as a player. So I suspect yeah. that's what they wanted. And that was the power of the, the 25 points because it was written through the eyes of a player, not through the eyes of a coach. And those 25, were they refined over the eight years or in, in over your no, career? I, or... No, I purposely left them, to be honest, because as I said, I, I wanted to remember as a player yeah, some yeah. became a bit irrelevant. One of them was don't overuse the interchange. Yeah, because back then, 
interchange was often used when a player made a mistake. You know, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, that player lost confidence because the coach would bring him off the ground. So, you know, two of them would never drag a player for a mistake, which I still use. And the other one was don't overuse the interchange. Now, the interchange became more, let's get players on, let's get them refreshed, let's get them back on the ground. So a couple of them were more superfluous because of the, the state of the game. But I didn't really change any of them because I wanted to be sure that this was written um, from a player, from Paul Ruse, the player, not Paul Ruse, the coach. So in effect, Paul Ruse, the player, was talking to Paul Ruse, the coach, through that document. Yeah. And it became really powerful. And that could help, I imagine, give you clarity when you're reflecting, like you said, like during challenging times or a tough loss or whatever it might be, you sort of, would you draw on that document to almost regather yourself and, and get clarity on, on what your purpose is in, in that role as coach? Yeah, 100%. I probably used it more at Melbourne than I did at Sydney, to be honest, because at Sydney, yeah, we played, I took over midway through 2002. We won six of our 10 games. 2003, we played in the prelim. Uh, 2004, we played in finals. 2005, we won the, the premiership. So certainly I drew on it at times, you know, but at Melbourne, I had to draw on it a lot. You know, we, the first couple of years were really tough. Um, at one stage, I think we lost 10 games in a row at Melbourne. So I was really drawing on a lot. So, and that was, you know, 2000 and um, what was that? 2014 going the four. So that was, uh, I wrote it in 1998. So a long time yeah. after I'd written it. So I used it. It was really invaluable then. Be positive, find solutions. You know, don't yell at the players. Don't rant and rave after a game. So you can imagine what it was like at Melbourne. You know, so I was able to use that a lot and held myself accountable to what, you know, and I ask of people that are in a leadership position, are you the leader you wish you had? And mm. I'll say that again. Are you the mm. leader you wish you had? Or are you doing things that you're just doing because the leader did them to you and you yeah. hated them? You hated them, but you kept on doing them because it just became a ladder, a leader. Uh, sorry, yeah. a, a habit. Are you the leader you wish you had? Yeah, that's awesome. Love that. That's a, that's a great quote for everyone to write down. Um, why do why, we have a tendency? I, I guess it makes sense. Like you just copy. It's a bit of you just copy what you see, right? And if you just think that's the model that um, yeah. I've got to do, and then the, an issue can happen with leadership where that model you might be a different leader to who that leader was. Like that leader might've done a really good job with that component of leadership and your style's completely different. So how important is it to find your style as a leader? Um, or is there just a universal way that humans work with leadership? Yeah, we do a lot of profiling at Performance by Design. I think it's, and the reason we do it is understanding yourself and understanding your others. Okay, so that's really important to understand what your natural tendencies are yeah, because my leadership style is naturally, even if David, David Parkin and I coached in exactly the same era, yeah, he's a different person to me, you know, and he sees the world differently to I do. I do. So it's really important. Self-awareness as a leader is really important because you don't want people going, oh, that sounded like David Parkin talking. That didn't sound like Paul Rue. Yeah, or, mm. or for David Parkin, gee, that sounded like Paul Rue's talking. But I also think you've got to be clear that there's some certain things that you need to be good at to be a good leader. Empathy, authenticity, honesty, communication. So there's some non-negotiables as far as I'm concerned. But the way you will do that will depend more on your style as a person. You know, mm. I, will do, I will communicate slightly differently to David Parker. The way I look authentic, authentic, my authenticity will look yeah. different to, to you know, Alistair Clarkson, you know, John Longmire, yeah. Ross Lyon. 
Yeah, but I suspect, yeah, we're all doing similar things in that in, in that environment. Yeah, so so I always say this: don't let who you are stop who you want who you want to be. All right, mm. meaning. Yeah, don't. If I'm, yeah, my profile suggests it's really hard for me to have hard conversations. You have to have hard conversations as a leader. Yeah, so don't let your profile determine the fact that you can let people get away with blue murder. Yeah. Yeah. Equally, if you're a really hard person naturally, you're going to have to wrap your arms around people. So don't don't be hard on everyone. And there's times Mm. to be hard, and there's times to wrap your arms around people. Yeah. So it's both. It's a it's inherent but you can learn the skill and it's important that leaders leaders learn those skills to become better leaders. Okay. So leadership is something you, you can work on and, and it's just having the awareness, whether it be like you said with performance by design, you have like a questionnaire, it sounds like, and, and you profile them and say, this is your, your strengths as a leader. This is some areas you need to work on. Um, and is it just a matter of actioning those areas you need to work on and then, sharpening your strengths, like practicing. I think one of the biggest the problems, Jack, I think one of the biggest problems, Jack, is we just, we promote people because of technical expertise. Now there's nothing wrong with that, but we actually don't work on their leadership capability. So let, let's, for instance, say, oh, I mean, we use football as an example, you know, an, an assistant coach at a football club basically looks after, and you've seen it, probably what about eight players directly, you know, and, a, and an area, let's, let's say the midfield area, a senior coach, has 44 players, plus the medical staff, plus the fitness staff, plus the deals with the marketing, the sponsorship, the board, et cetera, et cetera. And it's similar in an accounting firm. You know, you might be a really, really good accountant and suddenly you're being promoted through your competence, all right? So mm. we just don't work enough on what leadership yeah. is. And that's a real, and it's regardless who it is. So my, my message to everyone listening Work on your leadership capabilities. What, what is authenticity? What is empathy? What is self-awareness? What is communication? What is honesty? You know, and because there's this notion once you get to a leadership position that you have to know everything. That's absolute crap. You know, mm. I've met they were some of the best leaders and they've all got weaknesses. But what they're really good at is asking questions and saying, I don't know. I don't mm. know. Let me find that answer out. I tell you what. If you've got a leader that says constantly, look, I don't know, I'll find it out, he's a good leader. Or mm. ask questions. Uh, Jack, sorry, I know we were in a meeting yesterday, mate, and I actually didn't really understand what you're talking about. Can you, I know I'm the CEO, but can you just explain to me a little bit more about, because that was a great point you made. Great yeah. leader. Ask questions, says he doesn't know all of it and continues to work on himself and has great self-awareness. Self-awareness and doesn't have a massive ego. Leaders with massive egos... They're, they're dangerous. They're, they're incredibly dangerous. Hard to mm. work with. And they're dangerous. They're, mm. They really are. They're, they're, they're incredibly dangerous because they create a really, really bad environment for everyone else. And the, the, the self-awareness has popped up a few times. What, what are some things that people who are listening can, can do to in, increase their self-awareness on, on their strengths and the areas they yep. need to work on as, as a leader? Ask, ask someone around you. you know, ask the, your five best friends. You know, um, if, what, how would you describe me? Ask them. You know, if I said to um, yeah, Tammy, for those who don't know, Tammy's my wife. I said, Tammy, can you, what, how would you describe myself in three words? Yeah, I said that Dylan and Tyler are two boys. And then maybe grab Johnny Blakey, Rossi Lyon, Alistair Lynch, uh, Brett Stevens. Guys, can you just, so ask the people around you, 
how they see you. You know, I think you're, you know, you're passionate, um, driven, but stubborn. Oh, okay. Gee, I actually didn't, I didn't realize it. I'm, I'm stubborn. What, what, explain to me how that, how that manifests. Well, yeah, we'll get into a conversation. Yeah, it, it sounds like you're listening, but you've already made a decision. Okay, so mm. ask people around you how they see you. And it's really, really important to listen to what they say, but also ask them questions. How does that, man, how does that stubbornness manifest itself? Okay, can you, and, well, can you let me know next time I'm being stubborn? You know, can you, mm. can you just, can you say, look, Ruzi, stop being stubborn. Okay, fantastic. So ask people around you. It's a really good way to um, understand yourself, how they see yeah. you. Your closest people. Yeah, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. How they see you. And then you can see trends. And yeah. You, you, you know, it's a um, great way to get some feedback. And, and then, like you said as well, it doesn't stop there. Just trying to continue to get feedback from your closest peers on when you're doing it. So then you can that will naturally build that self-awareness over time, won't it? Where you'll, you'll notice it before it actually even happens that you're going down that, that route. Yeah, 100%. And also the other thing to do, Jack, is, is write down how you want people to see you. Yeah, you know, like what, how do you want to be seen as a leader? Because they might be dramatically different. And if they're dramatically different, then you've got a problem, you know, because if I, if I, let's say I want to be supportive, honest and uh, trustworthy, and all of a sudden I ask my five or six best friends and they go, um, well, you're not that, you tell a few lies. Um, you know, you cut us out a lot and you're stubborn. Suddenly there's mm. this massive disconnect about what you want to do. So now you've got this nice little roadmap to close the gap between, you know, how you see yourself or want to be seen. And it's just a really good way to audit yourself all the time. You know, what do I want to be? You know, how do I, how do I turn up every single day and then get, some accountability partners, um, which is really, really, yeah, I did this really cool um, course um, with my son and a couple of his mates on Momentum Lifestyle. And it was a yeah. lot around that. It was a lot around, you know, what is, what is your purpose? What's your personal brand? So it was fantastic from a personal development point of view. So anyone looking for that, um, get on the Momentum Lifestyle website or their Instagram because it, it, it was really even eye-opening for me. It was great for me to do another leadership development, personal development course to be mm. able to, to look at myself. And um, my business partner tells a great story, which I, I'm sure he doesn't mind me telling it. You know, yeah. we, did, um, we did the profiling and so, so my business partner got his profile and said to his wife, oh, have a look at this shit. Look what, look what they've written in this profile. And she picked it up and she pissed herself laughing. She said, finally, someone is put into, <laughs> finally, someone's put into wording exactly what I've been telling you for the last 10 years. Yeah. So yeah. it's really, that's why it's really fascinating. It? Yeah. It can yeah. be confronting, but again, self-awareness. Oh, wow. Thanks for that. Now, I, yeah. What do I want to be? How, what do I want to work on and how am I going to get the place, you know, that, that I want to get to, but it's pretty, it's pretty cool when it happens. We, yeah. We have some great conversations around, yeah, the profiling, which is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So, for, for, so yeah, went into from Sydney to Melbourne, um, and then what? What have you been doing since coaching? What you know, um, I know performance by design is is a business of yours. For those that aren't aware of um, your role there, what what, yeah. what is performance by design, and and what do you do? Yeah, so there's four directors. You know, we got together about three or four years ago, and we got a number of, of staff as well. And really, we we work on that more from a corporate point of view. You know, what 
what are your values? What are your behaviours? You know, we, I know a lot of companies have got the values on the wall, but they don't really live them and breathe them. So we, sorry, I'm just putting my AirPods away, mate. They're, their batteries are running out. So for those of you out there, just bear with me. You got me yep. still? I'll let you know when oh, we can yes. hear you. Yep, we can hear you now. Yep. Yep, perfect. Um, so what we do is really we bring behaviours to life. I guess that's the best way to say it. We sort of identify what people, what's not taking them to where they want to go to and what, how they want to get there. So we really bring our behaviours to life. Yeah, we work a lot. We do a lot on profiling. We do a lot on connection, relationships. Yeah, so we really work with exec teams. We work with sporting clubs, but most of our work's in the corporate space. Um, and we really bring those behaviours to life. And we really, really work closely yeah, on that, which is really, really cool. So, yeah, we've got some really good clients and, and it's really rewarding work. Yeah, when we're taking these executive teams, we're shaping their behaviours, we're shaping their culture. You know, what, the way I articulate it is we, we try and take the chance out of your culture. Yeah, we want role yeah. model leaders. And just to be clear on what culture is, culture is, is simply the actions that we reward and the actions that we challenge. So we, we try and get companies to be really clear on what those actions are and then we help them have really honest conversations. Well done on this, Jack. Fantastic. Thanks for doing this yesterday. Jack, we just don't do that, you know, in this organisation. So being really mm. clear on what your behaviours are and, and building really strong relationships, understanding yourself, understanding others, and then having really honest and open conversations. So on, on that topic um, with culture and like you said, like um, what, what do we reward and then what do we um, want to change in, in culture? When you see an action that um, isn't part of that culture, do you act on that straight away or is that something that's done more in a formal, if you have a weekly catch-up with that person, is that when you then would, would talk to them about that action and how you want to see that differently? How do you go about the communication side? Um, yeah, it's a good question things? because probably the hardest thing that corporates find is having those honest conversations. Whereas being involved in footy, and you would have seen it, Jack, is, I don't talk about difficult conversations. I just talk about conversations because I've been in the footy yeah. environment for 40 years. Yeah, so we just we have formal and informal conversations at football clubs. But, but let's be really clear. It's a learned skill. So what we try and do at Performance by Design is create a really safe environment. We, we need to be really clear on what those behaviours are. So firstly, if you're not sure what they are, just ask a question. Um, oh, look, was that right? You know, I noticed everyone was turning up late to meetings. Is that something that we accept here? Oh, no, actually, okay, fantastic. So ask questions. And then we'll try and create a really, you know, nice environment for people to give feedback. And then as, we find, and as we're more comfortable with that, you know, six mm. months, 12 months, then it becomes both formal, you know, in our sales meetings, in our reviews, but informal. You know, walk into your office. Hey, Jack, thanks, mate, yesterday. That was awesome. Yeah, I loved the chop out you gave in that meeting. I really got a bit lost in the presentation. I love the way, yeah, one of the things we talk about at um, Performance by Design is our teamwork, and you jumped in, mate. Fantastic. Yeah, I really appreciate yeah. it. Oh, thanks, Rusey. Thanks for the feedback. Bang. Then I'll just walk out of your office. So ideally, that's what we want to get to, but it is a yep. learned skill, and we have to teach each other, and we have to create a really safe environment to do that. And how often do you think groups, um, so let's say with the football, you've got your medical, your conditioning, and then you've got your coaches, line coaches, so like little cohorts amongst a team, how often should they be catching up um, over a, in, for formal meetings, that is? 
Yeah, I mean, it's different environments. Obviously, footy clubs are really high, highly accountable, high meeting, you know, uh, habits, cadence is really similar every single week. So it's, it's really important that whatever, those, whatever your meetings are, they've got to have a purpose. And probably mm. one of the biggest differences I see in the, in the football world, the corporate world, often we have meetings for the meeting's sake. And it, it probably does happen at footy too, Jack, doesn't it? Sometimes it's meetings for the yeah. meeting's sake. So rather than answering that question, directly i'd probably say make sure you have a purpose for your meeting make sure you have an agenda in your meetings and at the start of meetings what we like to do at performance by design just have some quick shout outs you know do a gratitude do a shout out where you're saying look does anyone want to reward some behavior this week yep quickly i'd just like to reward jack what he did yesterday was really good so it's probably more around having the the agenda set and making sure we're not having meetings for meeting's sake and then when you do want to reward and challenge, make sure you're putting time aside to do that. Because often if we do it in an informal sense, what we notice, and I'm sure everyone in Australia would notice, what happens with feedback? It's humour. We, we revert straight to humour. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, well done, Jack. Thanks for yesterday, mate. Um, that was great. Yeah, you know, geez, nice shirt. Bloody, what about the shirt you're wearing? Hang on, the shirt's completely irrelevant <laughs> to the feedback or the haircut you've just had. But don't we? We throw in... We often throw in humour, so then it dilutes the feedback. So we, we have yeah. to create an environment that we're really clear on what we're doing at any one particular time. And is that just um, a bit of comfort, the humour, do you think? I think so. I think it just be- becomes comfortable for us to reserve the humour. And in our sessions of performance by design, I reckon 90% of them, when we start the session about giving and receiving feedback, we have to pull up, guys, what, what do we see? Humour. Okay. Mm. What we want to do is, this is a feedback session now, guys. Be really clear. We're giving and receiving feedback. Give the feedback. Look someone in the eye. And then all the person has to do is thank you very much. And if you've got a a question about that, just follow up later on. So setting the environment for the feedback is really, really important. When you're having big meetings and there's like general it's not specific to one person on this is exactly what, what we want to see or this is what you're doing really well. It's more general uh, issues, let's say, that we're noticing in the performance side, whatever it might be. Um, how do you then turn that into things that you're going to actually action? You know, sometimes I feel like I've been part of meetings and, and I know speaking to other people where you'll have all these meetings and then you'll walk away from it and everyone's like, well, what are we actually doing about it? Because <laughs> there wasn't any actionable. So uh-huh. how important is it to discuss a problem and then does it need to be, okay, who's doing what and having set, set tasks to people? Yeah, I think that's the biggest problem, mate. We discuss it, we don't get an end point. Now, an end point can be, Jack, can you follow up on that? Okay, so that's the end point to the discussion. It doesn't have to be we solve the problem, but the end point must be an action, which is what you're saying. So I think what we do get caught on sometimes, we want a solution and then we don't get anything. So we just keep yeah. talking about it. And then all of a sudden the meeting finishes and you go, Rusey, what happened with that problem about the hammy injury? Um, yeah. I, I don't know. But a solution can be, Jack, can you follow up on that? So the last five minutes of your meeting should always be, okay, who's doing this? What's the summary? And is there anything that's unresolved? And if there is, okay, guys, are you happy? Even, guys, we can't resolve this today. Are you happy to pick this up on Friday morning? Yep, fantastic. Mm. Otherwise, it never gets done and everyone works, walks out getting so confused about what happened in the meeting. And we see that constantly in the corporate world. 
So you need to have someone, I guess, set that's running the meeting where they, they intro with the topics, there's an agenda, um, there's topics that's discussed and they're keeping, like you said, they're not, you're not going off task with humour. Um, so is that, is that one person or is it, is, it, is it more the ultimate where everyone's sort of leading? I think even, the I think even guys extends before that, Jack. It's preparation before the meeting too, which we don't see. Okay, why mm. is Jack in the meeting? Why is Rosie in the meeting? Uh, should they be in the meeting? How many times mm. have you turned up to a meeting and thought, why am I actually in this meeting? So, so yeah. it goes beyond that. Preparing for the meetings and then someone running the meetings 100%. Yeah, absolutely. No, no question. So preparation for the meeting and someone running the meeting to get it back on track and yeah, making sure we're having really good conversations in the meeting, but understanding that conversation has to close at some point of time to have a resolution. And as I said, the resolution might only be, Guys, we're going to talk about this again Friday. Is everyone happy with that? Love it. Oh, fantastic, mate. Well, well, we'll start to wrap it up now. For, for those uh, young footballers that have tuned in, I know a couple of set questions around this topic. Um, when you see a young player or, or you've had your first meeting with a player or you've seen their first session, what do you like to, to see out of young up-and-coming players? What, what's something that catches your eye? For me, and I've done a lot of research on what makes players successful, it's about character yeah everyone's going to have def different technical skills in what they're capable of doing but if i look at probably two guys in particular kieran jack who was a rookie selection for the sydney swans became an all-australian best and fairest winner brett kirk who was nearly delisted at the end of 2002 um, became one of the great sydney swans players of all time through work ethic through character and work ethic so for young players out there Work extremely hard on whatever you do. Be passionate about your footy. Be passionate about whatever it is and work extremely hard. If you work hard, you'll get there. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how talented you are. There's always people that are going to work harder. Than you. But if your talent matches your work ethic and you've got great talent, Gary Wilson, you're going to be one of the great players of all time. Bernie Quinlan, you're going to be one of the great players of all time. Adam Goods, you're going to be one of the great players of all time. But if you don't think you've got the talent, that's fine. I've seen plenty of players, I've mentioned two of them, that have become two of the best Swans players of all time. And I could go through the 2005 Premiership team, um, you know, Benny Matthews, Jared Crouch, Luke Ablett, Eamon Buchanan, you know, just worked extremely hard to be the best they possibly could be. Um, so just work as hard on your craft as you possibly can. Love it. Awesome, mate. And, and we'll wrap it up with this last question. What are you excited about for, for 2021? What's on the horizon for you? Well, at the moment, there's not too much to be excited about, Jack, because I'm locked down in the... the, the we could, that, that could be another podcast, to be honest, like, about politicians. But let's, let's end on a positive note. A, um, a rant podcast, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I might do another. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm excited about the, the footy. You know, I'm, I'm really enjoying the game itself. And I know there's a couple of Demon supporters on the, you know, on the, on the call. I've just got someone, Paul, tapped in and said, uh, flags for the Demons down the bottom there, Jack. I can see that. Yeah, but I, I just think, um, yeah, I love watching the games. It's, it's exciting, you know, for Maxi Gorn. I hope Nathan Jones can get back in the team because I, the commitment that he put into that footy club has been amazing. So to see them going really well, to have an association for three years and to see, yeah, how, how tough it was for those players, Neville Jetta, Max Gorn, Nathan Jones. Yeah, to see, you know, Christopher Petrarca come in and Clayton Oliver and Angus Brayshaw, guys that I coach, is, is really exciting. Um, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the performance by design. 
you know, where we can take culture, you know, and, and people are really starting to, to think about it, you know, how's my culture, you know, what do I need to do? And I also feel, Jack, the feel that you and I spend a lot of time in you in particular, we've got to get healthier as a, mm. as a, as a nation, as, as, you know, worldwide. We've got to start looking after ourselves better. Yeah, you know, no question. So eating better, exercising, being more mindful, meditating, whatever that looks like, we've got to look after ourselves much, much better than we are at the moment. So let's all, let's all do that. Let's all help our, our friends. Let's, people are doing it really tough in Melbourne. If you can get to a takeaway place, if you can buy something from a shop online, if you can help someone, let's reach out because um, the politicians aren't going to do it, so we're going to have to do it ourselves. Fantastic. What a, what a great way to wrap it up, mate. Thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your experiences over your journey. And uh, yeah, really appreciate all the, um, the gems you've provided throughout the last sort of 45 minutes, mate. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, guys. And to Paul, yeah, I would pick Nathan Jones. Definitely, 100%. Love him. Good on you guys. Enjoy. Thanks for having me, Jack. I really uh, appreciate it. Cheers, Rosie. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to make an appearance on a future episode and ask questions directly to our guest, follow these three simple steps. One, follow our podcast. Two, leave a descriptive review about your favorite episode. Three, join our academy on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. The first 10 people to join our academy will receive a free coaching session with myself. Thanks so much for tuning in.